Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to this Sunday service. Thank you for joining in, as you already have, through the singing of, of uh, songs of worship to God. And now we want to hear from God through his word. After the service today, those of you who have access uh, to the internet, you can download a discussion guide that you can continue this discussion in your uh, family settings. But right now, I think we need to pray. And let's pray as we uh, bow before the Word of God with our hearts and ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us. Most gracious God, we thank you for your Word. We thank that you've given to us your Word in a form that we can read and understand. What a gift that is to us. And now I ask that you would open our eyes so that we can see the truths in, that are contained in this passage. I pray that you would press our hearts towards the things of God and not the things of man. I pray, Father, that you would exalt Jesus Christ in this text and that we would see him for all his glory and that we would be edified and built up in the faith. And I pray, Father, that if there's anyone listening to this message, that they would indeed hear the word of God and they would receive it as the word of God. And if they're not saved, they will put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and their eternal Lord. I pray this in his name and for his glory we ask. Amen. You know, Christians are very familiar with the concept of prophet. Um, you cannot help read your Bible and see uh, lots of references to prophets throughout the scriptures. The whole idea of a prophet is not a foreign concept to uh, Christians who have spent any time uh, uh, studying the Christian faith. A prophet is someone who speaks the truth to other people. Particularly, a prophet is someone who communicates the word of God to people. The prophets were used in the Old Testament as instruments to guide the nation of Israel. And prophets were also used in the building up of the church. Uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 20, he said that, the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. There are at least 130 prophets spoken of in the scriptures. Abraham was the first prophet. But as Pastor Josh spoke of a few weeks ago, as he introduced us to the book of Hebrews, we're taught even in the early the first verse of Hebrews, we're taught that long ago and in many times and in different ways, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. There are certain characteristics of a prophet that we would just naturally assume to be true, and one of them being that a prophet is a holy person. Peter said in his uh, second letter in the first chapter that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. 
but men spoke from God. Some translations say holy men were moved by God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Having said all that, this morning I'm going to introduce you to a very unlikely prophet. In all the pages of Holy Scripture, when you would come across his name and the incidents around his life, you would never think that he would be a prophet. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles as we uh, read the account. The Scripture text is found in John chapter 11, and I'm going to be reading verses 45 to 57. John chapter 11, verses 45 to 57. Hear God's word. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This indeed is God's holy word. The main idea that I want you to look for as I talk, as I with God's help, try to give understanding to this text. The main idea that I want you to look for is that one of God's greatest promises 
and one of our greatest hopes comes to us through the most unlikely, the most implausible, the most inconceivable prophet in the Bible. Will you look for that hope? Will you look for that promise? Now in the beginning of our passage, John reminds us that there are two reactions to the crowd. I'm sure you're familiar with that statement from me. It seems to be through the, the Gospel of John. It seems to uh, pervade much of the reaction of any group to the Word of God and to the words of Jesus. It seems to divide a crowd, split the crowd. Perhaps even today, the audience that is before me, there will be a divide, a split. In this case, there was, a, there was two reactions. One was that some people, after Lazarus was raised from the dead, some people put their faith in Jesus. Some people believed into Jesus. But others seemed compelled to report what went on at the raising of Lazarus to the Pharisees. Uh, I have no idea why. What, what they were, why they were motivated to uh, report this incident to the Pharisees. We can only speculate. But John immediately shows us that there's a split in the crowd. Some believe and some people do not. But in fact, they take action and they report this to Jesus, or what Jesus did to the Pharisees. In verse 47, we read, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. The report of the crowd troubled the Pharisees. It left them in a quandary. What are we going to do? This man is having an impact on our nation. Now you should understand that the Pharisees in and of themselves could not make judicial decisions regarding the nation of Israel. Rome had appointed the Sanhedrin to do that. The Sanhedrin was the highest court within this nation of Israel at this time. It was composed of 70 members. Primarily, it was composed of chief priests and Sadducees and in minority Pharisees. The concern that the Pharisees brought to this tribunal, the, the issue that they brought to this group of ruling people was the fact that the popularity of Jesus might spark uh, a, a huge uprising which would alert Rome to a problem, a civil problem, and Rome would come and not only crush their temple, but crush the nation on, as a whole. Then we read in verse 49 and verse 50, one of them, 
Caiaphas stood up, who was the high priest that year, and said to them, you know nothing. Don't you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish? Caiaphas had been appointed as high priest by Rome. Under the old covenant, the high, priest, uh, the high priestly office was a lifetime position. But under Rome, they would pick and choose the high priest they wanted to lead this Sanhedrin, this Council of Seventy. In fact, Caiaphas's father-in-law, Annas, who was still alive, and he will appear again in this story, or John's story, uh, was the previous high priest, but the, he had been set aside for Caiaphas. Caiaphas made a ruling. He made a decision. He gave his opinion as the leader of this Sanhedrin. He said in so many words, uh, we have a choice. Either one man die for the nation or the whole nation die. That's in simple terms what he said. But then I want you to look closely at verse 51. In verse 51 and verse 52, we have John's editorial comment. This comment is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This comment of John helps us interpret what just took place when Caiaphas spoke. This is very significant. I urge you as you read Scripture, when the, when the author gives a comment on what's happening, that is critical to our understanding of what is being written of. From John's record, the Holy Spirit in, inspired this interpretation. He tells us, one, that Caiaphas didn't say this on his own accord or by his own initiative. Think of that. Caiaphas stood up and voluntarily disclosed a solution to the problem. But we learn via the Holy Spirit that Caiaphas did not say that on his own initiative. It was voluntarily stated, but it wasn't by his own initiative. In fact, John views these words of Caiaphas as prophetic, as coming from God. John tells us that what Caiaphas says by interpretation is that Jesus would die for the nation and Jesus would gather the scattered children of God. John is telling us that that is what Caiaphas' words mean. 
Now, there's no reason to assume that Caiaphas thought he was giving a prophecy. There's none. He's only stating his opinion in the middle of this council meeting. But this is neat. Unknowingly, unwittingly, in the providence of God, this high priest becomes a channel of divine revelation. Think of that. Unknowingly, unwittingly, he becomes a channel of divine revelation. God planned Caiaphas's words to serve God's purposes. They held a far greater meaning than Caiaphas had ever imagined or planned. In fact, Caiaphas intended his words for evil. But God intended his words for good. That idea shouldn't be strange to you as a Christian. Caiaphas intended his words to do harm to Jesus. God intended his words to show that Jesus would die for sinners and gather the children of God scattered around the world. Again, we see this interplay that is so common in the Bible, this interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I believe that this leads us to the very point of the narrative. This leads us to the very point why John recorded this event for us. It was God who decided that Jesus would die. Jesus' death was not an accidental. It wasn't just a tragic tragedy on the pages of history. Jesus was not a martyr. Jesus was not a victim of an unjust society. The death of Jesus Christ fulfilled the eternal plan of God. God sovereignly used the words of Caiaphas to harmonize with his sovereign decision that was made within the Godhead before the world was created. Peter understood this very clearly in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. Listen to what Peter says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs 
that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus delivered by the definite plan of God you chose to kill. John MacArthur says it very well. And I quote, The responsibility for the wicked meaning of his words belonged to Caiaphas. But God's providence directed the choice of words so as to express the heart of God's glorious plan of salvation. The, evil, the evil responsibility, the liability for these words belonged to Caiaphas. But the choice of those words expressed the very heart of God and his glorious plan to save sinners. Again, the early church knew this. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28, we read of the church gathered to pray. And we read these words. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Beloved, capture the meaning of that. The early church understood that the, the city of Jerusalem had gathered together under its leadership to do to Jesus what God had planned and predestined to take place beforehand. And what is this glorious plan? What is this glorious plan that God in his foreknowledge had predetermined to take place at the hands of wicked men? John says that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The plan of salvation not only included the nation of Israel, but the scattered children of God throughout the world. That's the scattered children of God some expositors understand that possibly John saw the scattered Jews through, through the dispersion being gathered, but most expositors, for very good reasons, see that this is a prophecy regarding the ingathering of Gentiles. 
And so you have some from the nation of Israel and some from the Gentile nations gathered to one as children of God. Let's be clear about something. What made them children of God was not the fact they were Jews. What made them children of God was not the fact that they were Gentiles. John, in his first chapter, has already taught us what he means by the phrase, children of God. We read in John 1, verses 11 to 13, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed into his name, he gave the right to become what is it? Children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Jesus would die for these children of God who are found among Jews and Gentiles found among all the nations of the world. Jesus would die for them. Who are these children of God? They are people who have received Jesus. They are people who have been, have put their faith in him, have believed in him. They are people born of the Spirit, born from above. John prophesies, or Caiaphas prophesies and John interprets for us that Jesus would die on behalf of these people. Then John records these words in verse 53. That from that day on they made plans to put him to death. This verse helps us understand the events that are going to take place from here on in. Now the decision to kill Jesus has been put into action. But before any of that transpires, before he is, uh, before the courts, before he is pleading in the garden, before he is suffering those beatings, before he is nailed to the cross, before any of these things happen, John wants us to know something. Yes, wicked men are doing this to Jesus, but they're only doing what God has predestined to take place. And so as we read the next events that are going to take place, we now have an interpretive key. As we see these events unfold, we now see them in light of the fact that these people are simply doing what God had predetermined them to do. We learn also that the public ministry of Jesus is now finished. He isolates himself in a place somewhere in the Judean desert. He finds a safe haven for a few hours to rest. His public ministry is now over in the sense 
He enters now into his ministry as our sacrificial high priest. We read that the Passover in Israel is on, is just coming up. And Israel, as a nation, is preparing for that Passover. And can I leave this thought with you about that? This Passover that Israel is preparing for will be a Passover like none other. There was no Passover going to be like this one. And there will never be another like this one. My friends, as a point of application, I want to go back to this prophecy of Caiaphas. There's a key word in here that I didn't emphasize and I want to emphasize now. It is the message. This is the sermon. That key word is found in verses 50 and again in 51 to 52. It's the little word for. For. F-O-R. It means on behalf of, in place of. Jesus is going to die for. Jesus is going to die for. When Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for or on behalf of the children of God, he was accidentally affirming that someone must die for some others. As we understand the unfolding of God's word, we understand that Caiaphas was prophesying unwittingly, unknowingly, that Jesus would come and his mission was for, on behalf of, to die for. Someone has to satisfy the debt of sin. Someone has to appease God. A God who is righteously indignant towards sinners. Someone has to pay the price for. And only the perfect Lamb of God that John the Baptist spoke of earlier in this gospel. Only the Lamb of God is the one that could take away the sin of the world. It was only by the shedding of blood that one could find forgiveness. You see, friends, in this narrative, Jesus is not just a helpless bystander. He's a willing Savior. This sacrifice that Jesus was about to make was not contrary to divine love. In fact, it was the ultimate expression of divine love, Jesus dying for sinners. 
through this perfect sacrifice that Jesus is about to be about to make in John's gospel the just wrath of God let me say it again just wrath the holy wrath of God will be satisfied forgiveness for all sin will be accomplished and fellowship between God and his people restored. Isn't it sad that Caiaphas didn't understand the full meaning of his words? Isn't it sad that he failed to see the significance of the words he said? But what Caiaphas failed to see, the Bible is very clear about. Let me share some verses from God's Word. These are ones you're familiar to, but I want you to notice how the idea of Jesus dying for sinners is absolutely full throughout the Scriptures. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, we read, He was pierced for our transgressions. What a little word, but how important it is. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. As a church, we gather to celebrate communion on a monthly basis. And at that service, nearly always, we quote these words that are taken from Luke 22, verse 19. Jesus took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. In one of the greatest expressions in a one verse of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, For our sake he made him to be sin. For our sake he made him to be sin. And Paul in Galatians 2.20, this precious, precious expression from God's word, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Someone has said that the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, that's what we've been talking about, Christ came as our substitute. He came in our place. He stood where we should stood. stood. He stood where we should have stood. He died for us instead of us dying. Someone has said this doctrine, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ is the heart of the gospel. And I heartily agree with them. But I will also want you to understand that this truth, this truth of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice is the binding of the Bible. 
It's what holds the whole Bible together in one book. The Bible makes no sense to us from Genesis 3.15 right through to Revelation 22. It makes no sense to us if we don't understand that God had appointed his son to come and die for sinners. Everything we read in the Old Testament is either a promise or a preparation leading to that climax in history when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would die for in the place of sinners. The substitutionary sacrifice of Christ is a big hammer to our pride. To believe in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ is to be humiliated beyond recognition. As we so lovingly sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There is nothing a human being can do to gain God's acceptance apart from faith in Jesus Christ, who is our substitutionary sacrifice. The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ also helps us understand some of the mysteries of God. It's in seeing Jesus on the cross dying for sinners that we understand the unflinching, the uncompromising hatred of God towards sin. It's in seeing Jesus Christ as our substitutionary sacrifice that we see God's absolute, unchanging justice to punish sin. And yet it's on that same cross we see expressed incomprehensible, even inexpressible love that God has for sinners. The songwriter Philip Bliss helps us, enables us to, to bow in a sense and worship as we contemplate the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Think of these familiar words as I remind you. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. Listen. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. 
What a Savior. And then he writes these words. It's his mercy and his grace drawing me to seek his face. May I do that all my days. You see, beloved, if we truly received Christ as Savior, if we truly have embraced the truth that Jesus Christ died for me, would it not be reasonable to live one's life seeking his face? Would it not be reasonable, as Bliss says, to live our lives seeking to please him and glorify him in all we do? Is it unreasonable to suggest that if you and I have really truly put our faith in our substitutionary sacrifice, who went to the cross and took on the wrath of God in our place, would it not be reasonable to think we would live lives of gratitude, thankfulness, worship, adoration, praise, to glorify his name? Would it not be reasonable for us who profess faith in Jesus Christ to live our lives differently? You see, my friends, you and I can't earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we're capable of to please God. But having received salvation, it should be reasonable to think that we would live our lives in pleasing glory to the one who stood in our place condemned. If you've been listening today intently and you find in your heart that in fact you're not a believer in Christ, that you have not received him, that you have not been born of the Spirit, but even as I have been speaking, as you have been strangely warmed and moved by the Holy Spirit and you have found in yourself a desire to know Jesus Christ and to know him personally can I remind you that also in the cross we see God's great love great love for sinners And Jesus Christ invites you today to repent of your sinfulness, to put your faith in him who died for your sin, to accept his free gift of salvation, and to commit your life to him, and to surrender your all to him, that you might be numbered among those in the world who are known as the children of God. If we at Elk Point Baptist Church can be of any assistance spiritually 
or in other ways to you at this time. You've already seen our telephone number and and a, a way that you can contact us. Please do that. It would give us the greatest joy to introduce our Savior to you, that you might know him and receive him and experience what he offers, eternal life. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for saving our soul. Thank you, Lord, for making us whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to us your great salvation. Heavenly Father, I pray that the truth that Jesus Christ stood in the place of condemned sinners like us might bring us to a place of humble adoration and humble submission to you. May we be encouraged to know that our sins have been forgiven. May we be exhorted to live as your children in this world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I invite you after our closing number to take a look at the discussion guide that's provided for you that you might talk further about these very important issues. And I pray God's richest blessing, whether you're sitting at home alone watching this or whether you're with your spouse or with your families, uh, I pray that you will be blessed as you consider with a greater depth and greater clarity the wonder of Christ's amazing love that he would stand condemned in our place. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and may the love of God and the continuing work of the Holy Spirit be with you all until we meet again. Amen.